So um, if you've been with us a while, if you've been watching online or listening uh, to the podcast, or if you've been present here, um, you know that we've been doing a series on Bible stories. So I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16 to begin with, and there is a Bible app event if you'd like to follow along that way that has pretty complete data in it uh, this week. There's a lot of information that will not be on the screen, but will be in the Bible app for you or in your own Bibles. You know why we're doing this series on Bible stories, right? First off, it's because those stories are there for a reason. It's not just that God wanted to, you know, fill some pages. He has something in mind when he put those stories there. There's kind of a trend, a small trend, in some Christian circles to kind of ignore those Old Testament stories. To ignore the Old Testament. In fact, one kind of celebrity pastor said recently, it's really time for us to kind of leave the Old Testament behind and become New Testament Christians. And I understand what he meant by that, and I get that. But you could take from that that the Old Testament is not important. It is. Think about this. When the Apostle Paul wrote the words of 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, just about the only scripture he had was the Old Testament. And so Paul is saying those stories are pretty important. And I would say to you that knowledge of the Old Testament is all but essential in developing a well-rounded understanding of New Testament theology. The Bible stories are there for a reason. Second, I would say to you that there are a lot of people that don't know the Bible stories. They're kind of unaware of them. Did you happen to see the Noah movie that came out maybe half a dozen years ago? Um, What's that guy's name? Russell Crowe? Did you see that movie? Man, that movie was right on par with a black and white Godzilla movie. I love that movie. Those stone monsters, you know, that's just crazy stuff, right? But it had very little to do with the biblical account of Noah. In fact, I would say the difference between that movie and the Godzilla movies is I really like the Godzilla movies. I didn't care to see the, the Noah movie a second time personally. And there's a lot of people that will rant about that, like, oh, they're misportraying Noah and the whole story. It's not Hollywood's job to do that. It's not Hollywood's job to tell the story of Noah. It's your job and my job to tell the story of Noah. And that's what we're doing, telling these Old Testament stories. There's a third reason. Often, when people read these stories or have studied them in the past, they kind of miss the point. I miss the point sometimes about them. Think about the story of the Tower of Babel, which we talked about several weeks ago. I can't tell you how many people, I, I, I can all but guarantee this, how many people would say, well, the point of that story is to show us how we got all the different languages. Eh, wrong answer. And if you were here, you know that's not the point. And if you remember the point, good. If you don't remember, you can go back and listen to that. It's archived at our website and you can follow that again and get the point of the story. A lot of times we miss the point. Even in the story of Hagar and Ishmael, which is today's story, people miss the point. I have heard people more than once suggest that this story is to tell us where Muslims, or more, more accurately, where Arabs come from. Ah, yeah, that's where the Arabs come from then. Well, let me tell you, talking with two people who professionally study Islam and work with Islam, two men this week, I can tell you they would say that there's a whole lot of Muslims that don't even believe that. A whole lot of Arabs that don't even believe that. We believe it because the media has told us that, and therefore, since the media said it, often pastors, preachers say that. Eh, it may be true. It may not be true. But in any case, that's not the point of the story at all. So today, I kind of want to talk about the point of the story. It's about, it's about this couple that you're familiar with, uh, because we talked about them a few weeks ago a little bit. Guy's name's Abraham, and his wife's name is Sarah. 
They haven't changed their names to that yet, so they're Abram and Sarai. And Abram and Sarai um, are childless. And so Sarai has this idea for her husband to have a child with her slave, Hagar. Not Hagar the horrible, Hagar. And the outcome of that union is a child named Ishmael, a blessed, blessed little boy. I guarantee you, you have never heard a preacher say that about Ishmael before. But I hope uh, by the end of this, as we walk through it, you'll understand why I said that. Kind of want to walk you through the story. I said to my wife, often I'll say to my wife, would you read this over and just kind of see if it's making sense at all to anyone? And she read it over and she said, that sounds great. So I got the gold star from Laurel, right? I really appreciate that she does that. She's like, yeah, I hate doing that. And I hate it when you tell them I do that, right? I love that look right there. I'm available for dinner. I'll need dinner. (laughs) My wife is very gracious. I said to her after she read it through, I said, I don't have one illustration in that story, in that sermon, rather. She said, the whole sermon's a story. It doesn't need any illustrations. And she's right. That's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through the entire story in the Bible. That's why I ask you to have your Bibles open so you can see them as we go. And what I want to do is kind of see how you connect personally with this story. Because people always connect personally with stories. Generally, we do, I guess I should say. In this story, there are a lot of people who kind of identify with Sarai. They do that because of the very first verse in chapter 16. The first half of that verse says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no ch- children. She's barren. She's not having children. And so part of that story really comes home for couples who maybe are struggling in that area, and rightly so. But this story is not about fertility or infertility. Other people identify with Abram. You know, they're kind of like, Abram, boy, I can't imagine what it was like to be in his shoes. I guess they do that because of the following words. And we're going to do this the whole way through chapter 16. So the very next part in verse 1 says, But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. Now, wow. There's a lot of emotion in that 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 people feel. I mean, some people immediately condemn Sarai for suggesting such a thing. That's just off the wall. However, history tells us that this was not unheard of in her day. In fact, History indicates this is pretty common in her day. Kind of like adoption is pretty common in our day. Faith life, for example, says, the procedure of a barren woman providing her husband with a concubine occurred in other ancient Near East cultures according to both the ancient work in Hammurabi's code and the ancient marriage contracts. Huh. So while this seems kind of inconceivable to many, we're not in Sarai's century, let alone in her sandals. Some people kind of either sympathize with or judge Abram for responding as he did. Look what he says in verse 3. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Hmm. Don't you wonder about Abram's mindset? I mean, is he happy to oblige? Sarah's probably in her 80s. Might not be a bad thing in a human being's mind, a male human's mind. Or is he honestly just wanting to act with compassion towards Sarai, his wife? Okay, I'll I'll do this. We don't know. 
And my guess is that your read on that is probably going to depend on your perspective and maybe your experience and maybe even your gender. So some people kind of feel this story about Abram and Sarai is one of a difficult choice and making a hard choice and then ending up making an ungodly choice that even looks like adultery or polygamy or maybe both. It's bigger than that. The story's bigger than that. It's bigger than fertility. It's bigger than this choice. It's a big story. The point is big. People identify with Sarah. They identify with Abram. And many people identify with Hagar. You probably know people who have been used, who've been abused physically, emotionally. Maybe you've experienced that yourself. Maybe Hagar felt that's what was happening to her. Probably was. And then there's the whole issue of slavery. <laughs> she was her slave? Is the Bible condoning slavery here? That whole question that people want to talk about, we've addressed that in the past. Even if you've read and understood that slavery in ancient times was much, much different than slavery in the United States of America in past centuries, that doesn't really matter because you can see that she doesn't have an option here. You can sense her oppression here. And there's no hint given in the passage that she's given a choice. Many have made this story about slavery. Believe it or not, it's bigger than that. Some people make this story about trusting God and the consequences of not trusting him. I have heard many sermons. I heard one on the internet just this past week that said this that this story is all about what happens when you doubt God and don't trust him. The internet preacher that I listened to said, this is why we have the problems that we have in the Middle East. It's because of what happened right here. This is, those problems are the consequence. I am not saying this. Do you understand that? I'm impersonating a jerk. <laughs> I'm good at that. <laughs> this, this whole problem that we have in the Middle East is the consequences of Abram and Sarah's decision They created the Arab people and thereby created this difficulty. That's crazy. That's just crazy. But actually, I've heard that. Lots of times I've heard that. It's a hard teaching to shake off. If you've heard it, you need to shake it off. Because it's not only missing the point of the story, it is offensive to God. And God is the one who acts best in this story. God does not look at the offspring of Hagar, this little child, Ishmael, and his offspring as a curse or as a problem or as a consequence of sin. He's going to, and I will demonstrate to you, he is going to show you that he loves Hagar and her son. Did you hear that? God loves Hagar and her children. If you've accepted the idea that the children of Hagar, (laughs) that there's some kind of a curse, I really hope in this message I'll show you that idea is not just inaccurate, it's shameful. The real point I want you to take away from this message is that God loves. This is a story about the love of God. This is a story that shows you that he loves all people. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever trusts in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He made them and he loves them. I say this, that God loves Hagar and her child because God gives Hagar and Ishmael a lot of ink. 
I'm not talking about tattoos at all. Rather, I'm talking about the fact that God's relationship with this slave woman and her son, that relationship is more detailed than anything else in the text we're going to see today. It is central to this passage. It is more focal than the issue of infertility. It is more enticing than the issue of sexuality. It is more dramatic than the drama between Sarai and Hagar. You know, there are only seven verses given to the birth of Isaac. He gets seven verses. We're going to read a whole chapter and more about Ishmael. And really, the only time you hear again about the boy Isaac is when his father is taking him to Mount Moriah, being tested and sacrificing him. Hagar and Ishmael get a lot more ink than that. Keep reading. In the second part of verse 4, you see Hagar is going to make a big mistake. It says, when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Okay, that wasn't a good mindset for Hagar to have. And it sets Sarah on fire. Verse 5. Then Sarai says to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram's seemingly spineless response makes matters worse. Verse 6. Your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. I can almost imagine him saying that and walking out and going back in to watch television. Can't you? Your slave is in your hand. Do with her what you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. I can't blame Hagar at all. Can you? The desert is not a good place to be, alone and pregnant. But that's not the end of the story. In the very next verse, the angel of the Lord is going to show up. Hey, are you beginning to see that God really cares about Hagar and his child? Watch. Pay attention to the language and pay attention to the angel who's called the angel of the Lord. This is a Christophany. That's a $10 word that means it's God. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. This is not an ordinary angel. Scholars say, no, Hagar in verse 13 calls him the Lord, so it's Jesus showing up right here. And you see, if Jesus is going to show up for Hagar at this moment in her life, that maybe Hagar and his child are important to God. As you read on, it says in verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near the spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And a lot of people look at that and they're all about like, wow, the geography, where is that spring exactly? Wouldn't that be cool to find on a map? I don't care where it is on a map. What I want you to see is he finds her. That God finds her. Okay, wait a minute. Since he's God, he knows everything. If you know everything there is to know, how hard is it to find someone you know exactly where they are? When the Bible is telling us that the angel of the Lord found Hagar, it's letting us know who was pursuing who. She wasn't going out into the desert to find God. God was pursuing her. God chased her down. Are you beginning to see that Yahweh cares about Hagar and her son? God pursues Hagar, and upon finding her, he kind of shows that he's familiar with her. 
or at least he has knowledge of her. In verse 8, the scripture reads, and he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Why did he call her by name? Why? I think it's because he realized that it would help her trust him. Because Yahweh, the Lord, he cares about Hagar and her son. And as the story moves forward, he gives her confidence. Without hesitation, he says, go back. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Remember, this is the mistress that had been mistreating her. There's a lot of speculation as to what went on in this mistreatment and everything else that's happening here. But the bottom line is, it was bad enough that a pregnant woman felt like it'd be better to be alone in the desert than to be back there where she was. And God is saying, you can go back. And he uses this familiarity to give her confidence to increase her faith. That's probably why, to increase her faith and to help her be confident, is probably why he gave her a promise similar to the Abrahamic covenant. Wait, what? Pastor Steve, are you saying that God speaks to this slave woman, Hagar, with a promise like the promise given to Abram? That's exactly what I'm saying. You be the judge. Just, uh, you can look on the screen. I put this verse up there. Here's the line from the Abrahamic covenant. Look up at the stars and count. Look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, God says to him, so shall your offspring be. And now look down at your text at the second part of verse 10 and listen to what that same God says to Hagar. I will increase your descendants so much that they'll be too numerous to count. That'll increase her confidence. That'll increase her confidence. Yahweh loves Hagar and her son. Throughout this encounter, God lets you know, lets her know that he actually sees her misery. He hears of her misery. In verse 11, the angel Lord said to her, you are now pregnant, you'll give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. He hears of her mystery, he comes to her because Yahweh loves Hagar and her son. And then God kind of wraps up this part of the conversation by telling her her son will be a fighter. Uh, Look at verse 12. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility toward all his brothers. I used to think, actually until this week, that that was a troubling statement. But I'm trying to figure out why God would want to trouble this woman who's pregnant and alone in the desert on the sand. So I kind of wrestled with that a little bit, and I kind of feel like, as I think about it, I'm not sure that would be troubling at all. She may very well be at the place where she wants nothing to do with Abram, Sarai, or the whole lot of them. It's all right. Your son will be a fighter. Your son will make it. He'll be a fighter. And if that's the case, if that's why God says that, even again, can you see that Yahweh loves Hagar and her son? By the way, do you know how many women in the Hebrew Bible had a personal encounter with God? In the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, how many women had an encounter with the divine? Well, there's Eve, right? That didn't turn out real good, right? And then there's Hagar. I read this week, Hagar is the only woman in the Hebrew Bible to have encounters, plural, with the divine. 
Not Sarai, not Rebecca, not Rachel, not Jochebed, not Deborah, not Ruth, not Hannah, not Esther. None of them had encounters personally with the divine. (laughs) Hagar got two. Are you beginning to see that God loves this woman and her child? And as the story, this part of it closes, we see that Hagar is pleased. She's pleased with the whole encounter. She and her son are blessed by God, so she blesses the Lord. Verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me, for she says, I have now seen the one who sees me. And a couple verses later, she has her son. Verse 15, so Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave him the name Ishmael, gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. Do you see the love of God in this story? I want you to move ahead to the rest of the story, to chapter 21, verse 8, and we'll be reading a dozen verses uh, from there shortly. This begins by speaking about Abram's other son, Sarah, who is a child of the promise through whom eventually Christ will be born in Bethlehem. This is the messianic line. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And so in verse eight, in the midst of all this, Isaac is born and it says, the child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham, his name has changed now, held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share any inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. Which son? Ishmael. (laughs) Abraham loved that boy. He's concerned because he loves both of his sons. And so God, knowing that he's concerned, God promises to Abraham that Ishmael is going to be okay. Look at verse 12. God says to him, do not be distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave woman into a nation also. Why? Because he's your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with a boy. And I got so many questions. (laughs) Really? A skin of water and some food? You're Abraham. You're incredibly wealthy by now. You don't have a camel you can send her with? You don't have a donkey? I got a million questions. I'm not going to answer any of them. It just blows my mind. And the outcome of it is that in the midst of that, Hagar loses hope. Look at verse 14. The second part says, she went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. And then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away. For she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. I can't imagine that. Can you? (laughs) So destitute. So abandoned. So alone. But she wasn't alone. 
Hagar is not alone because God hears and he responds. In fact, the very name Ishmael, the name of the little boy, it means God hears. (laughs) And so right there you have it in verse 17, God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand and I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave it, gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in a desert and became an archer. Do you see that God loves Hagar? <laughs> Do you see that God loves Ishmael? <laughs> Do you see that God loves people? This story is a story of love that God has for humankind. And that love brings hope to anyone and everyone. First of all, to you and me, it means that God loves us, that God loves you. I don't know, maybe you don't feel like you've had a lot of social currency. Do you know what I mean by that? Like you're not one of those movers and shakers. (laughs) And you're not one of those people that has just a ton of people flocking to be your friend. Maybe it's hard for you to make friends. Maybe you're a little abrasive. Maybe you tend to behave with some pride and some pretense, like Hagar when she found out that she was carrying Abram's child. Well, God loved Hagar, and God loves you. No matter how much you have blown it, God loves you. And whenever you feel like sitting down in the desert heat and just giving up on life, don't do it. Don't you dare do it. There's a God who sees you. There's a God who hears you. There's a God who is aware of your misery. There is a God who loves you. And he will be there for you. If you take nothing else from this story, take the fact, the reality, that God loves you. And that story gives you hope, not just because of his love, but because you have a choice to love. You can choose who you'll be like in this story. And think of the people in this story you don't want to be like. I mean, we all have good days and we have bad days. You know, you ever look at somebody and say, eh, this wasn't one of my better days. Sarah is not having one of her better days in this story. I don't want to be like Sarah at this moment in her life. She's working to manipulate circumstances that God has promised to care for. I'm not blaming her. I've never been in her shoes. And I'm surely not condemning her because grace prohibits me from doing so. But I don't want to be like her. And neither do you. To be manipulative that way. Think of the people in the story you don't want to be like. I don't want to be like Sarai. I don't want to be like Abram at this moment in his life. In this story, Abram fails to protect the vulnerable. Fails to protect Hagar. (laughs) He gives Sarai no counsel, no direction, no support, no sounding board, no help in dealing with her pain. I think one of the most irresponsible statements in all of scripture may be, your slave is in your hands. Do with her as whatever you think best. I want to slap him. I mean, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but man, that's all you got for a woman that's feeling like that woman is feeling? I don't want to be Abram in this story. And honestly, I don't want to be Hagar. She's a victim for sure, but that doesn't excuse her smug behavior when she became pregnant. 
I don't want to be like her. I want to imitate God in this story. And before you say, well, that sounds kind of arrogant, Pastor Steve, let me remind you that you and I reflect his image. We bear his image. We show his image in creation. That's part of our mission. And he is the hero in this story. He is the one who keeps coming through for Hagar and Ishmael. And he does this because he loves people. That's what I want. I want to be the kind of person who shows love for people who are outsiders. No one knows for sure how Hagar came to be Sarai's slave. There are theories. What matters most is that she was an outsider. She was an Egyptian. She was an alien. And yet, God loved her. That's what I want to do. I want to love like God loves. I want to love people who are different than me. I want to love people who are unlike me. I want to love people that it is not in my human nature to love. I want to love like God loves. I want to be like God. I want to show people for love who don't really deserve it, who are difficult to love, because I don't deserve God's love. And frankly, Laurel will tell you, I'm very difficult to love. But God loves me. I want to do that. I want to love people who are smug, like Harrow was smug like Hagar was smug. I want to love people who behave so irresponsibly, I want to slap them, like Abram. I want to love people who are mean, like Sarah was mean. I want to love, like God loves. And when I can, I want to provide for those who are in need, whether whether they deserve it or not. There's nothing here to say that Hagar deserved the goodness that God gave her. He just gave her that goodness. Look at verse 19 again. It says, Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin of water and gave the boy a drink. Okay, here's a sermon illustration. It's not in a sermon. One time we were coming through Pittsburgh at about 2 in the morning. We were coming up from Georgia. It was Laurel and me and her brother Tim and his fiance, And we were driving along there at two in the morning, going through, and we come down through the tunnels and there's the Fort Pitt Bridge and there's the city all lit up. And that, that fiance, that poor little girl had only ever seen Cleveland. She was so impressed by how beautiful Pittsburgh is. You gotta be a Pittsburgher to really appreciate that joke, sorry. Okay. It was all lit up, it was beautiful. We came through across those bridges and went out the parkway and, and I looked and we're out of gas. I mean, we got like an eighth of a tank of gas. And there's no gas stations. I can't find any gas stations. I don't even know in Pittsburgh. I lived there before, but now I don't even know where to find a gas station. There we go. We're clear out. Coming up toward Murraysville pretty soon here, right? And as we're going around, we come around this corner, and there is, and we're praying. Pray we find a gas station, guys. And there is this sheet station that is so new. Now, do your memories do this? My memories get better and better and better. And so the stories get better and better and better when I tell them, Okay. That sheet station was so new that the asphalt was still steaming, you know? In my memory, that's how new it was. It was just a brand new station. You could smell the asphalt. We pulled in at two in the morning. We filled up with gas. When we paid, Tim said, my, my, my brother-in-law said, hey, Steve, when you pay that guy, tell him he wasn't here 10 minutes ago. We prayed this station into existence because we were out of gas, okay? Now, we know that didn't happen, right? <laughs> 
Maybe it did. I don't think it did. But privately, whenever I, I, I know this passage says that God opened her eyes to see the well that was already there. But privately in my mind, I, I kind of I wonder if God just put it there right then. Even if he didn't. I can guarantee you when God put that well there, he had in mind the fact that someone he loved, Hagar, and her beloved little boy, Ishmael, would need a drink. <laughs> I want to be like that. I want to give. That's why I give to overseas ministry. How can you give to those people? <laughs> wow. I can give to those people because I want to be like God. I want to love. That's why I give to local ministry. That's why I give to people. That's why on very, very rare occasions, if you ever went out to eat with me, I might buy your coffee. <laughs> I want to give like God gives. That's a really beautiful picture, isn't it? The guy who painted that, <laughs> this is going to be fun, ready? Emmanuel Krajenek Liska. That's probably not how to say it. He painted that in 1883. I, there's kind of a joke in my family, I don't know art, but I know that's art. Look at that for a minute. It, he, he titled it Hagar and Ishmael in the Desert. That was the title he gave that painting. Isn't that a beautiful painting? Let me tell you something. The love of God is infinitely more beautiful than that painting. And when you choose to do it, so are you. I want to pray that you and I, of all the ones we could imitate or identify with in this Bible story, that we would identify with Yahweh who loves. If you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together as we pray. By the way, to just shake off that idea, if you happen to have it, that the children of Ishmael might have been a problem, I hope you did. Because that's a big part of the point I want you to get today. But I want you to focus for just a moment. You know, when we do things in routine, sometimes they just become so routine we don't pay attention. Don't lose this moment in the morning. It's maybe the best moment in the morning. This is your chance to say to God, I want to love like you love. Okay? So uh, let's do that. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your love for us. We are thankful that you so loved the world that you gave your one and only son, that whoever trusts in you, whoever trusts in Christ, will not perish but have eternal life. Thank you that your love is non-discriminating, that you love without regard, that you're not a respecter of person, so to speak. Like, oh, I love him because he's pretty cool, but not him. I love her because she's pretty cool, but not her. No, you don't behave that way, God. You love May we be men and women who have acknowledged that love and received that love by receiving you, Jesus, as our Savior, placing our trust in you as we turn our back on sin, following after you. And may we show similar love as we bear your image by the power of your Spirit living in us in the name of Christ Jesus the Lord. Amen.